Welcome to FRT, the IAF's podcast at the intersection of finance, regulation, and technology. I'm Jessica Renier, Managing Director of the Digital Finance Team here at the IAF. I'm here with Julia Sterling, Vice President in Business Development for Big Data and Advanced Analytics at Commerce Bank in Germany. And today we're going to talk about artificial intelligence, the European Union's Artificial Intelligence Act, and the connection to data policies, particularly cross-border policies. Welcome, Julia. We're very excited to have you. Hi, Jessica. I'm um, really excited to be here. Thank you for having me. I uh, do work for Commerce Bank in Frankfurt headquarters, and our department is called Big Data Advanced Analytics, and we have the task to be the center of competence for AI. That means we do the AI and machine learning strategy for our bank. We do the machine learning governance, and we also look into the regulation, which is upcoming right at the moment. In particular, we are looking at the AI Act and all the other jurisdictions which might follow soon or, or later. I know there's just been so much development in the artificial intelligence space, machine learning, generative AI, just a lot going on recently. Amongst all of that, as you look across the space in advanced analytics, what excites you most? Because there are so many things to be excited about right now. (laughs) What excites you most as you look across the landscape right now? I think uh, since February and March, all these generative AI models are a lot more in the media than they used to be. And of course, I think the, the user experience you can have when you try these tools out, it's really, it can be really mind-blowing if you just jump to mid-journey and dolly and whatever these tools for AI art are called. This is what uh, actually I love because you just type in something and you get really high-quality pictures. And it, this can be really mind-blowing, I think, to some people. And of course, the large language models can be really powerful. And um, if you, you just go there, jump in, try it out. I think for people who hadn't had the chance before to do AI in their daily lives, this is going to be really mind-blowing. And if you think about it applied explicitly to financial services, particularly coming from Commerce Bank, where do you see some of the greatest opportunities to be employed by a bank or employed just across the financial industry generally? I'd say there are four areas where AI is, can do a lot more than, or is at least something we are already using, but there's still a lot more we could do in these areas. First one is the classical process automation. We are working in an industry which was traditionally really paper-based and uh, getting rid of all those paper and automating all those processes, there is still a lot to be done. And of course, with more powerful tools, automation can be a lot better. The second area, I think, is uh, marketing and sales growth, where we have these classical Netflix or Amazon examples. Other customers also watch Series X, if you like Series Z, or other customers bought something else. And then we can look into these uh, risk areas where there's also a lot going on. For example, you have this all these risk models we used in the past. And let's say um, the classical risk models are more traditional models, but un- under the new regulation, they will also count as AI tools, even the logistic regressions. So it's a bit more advanced techniques will also come in here because if you are trying 
to be a good risk manager, you need to model the reality as good as it is. And uh, since these realities are often non-linear, then uh, you will find yourself easily attached to machine learning tools because these are really good in non-linear relationships. And of course, there's a big area of loss, risk and fraud, I'd say, where this is a particular field of expertise for AI that you can do a lot of things with uh, pattern mining and these kind of things. I think it's so important right now as as so many people get more familiar and really dug into artificial intelligence and machine learning that they understand definitions or or start to differentiate between things that are are simply modeling that the financial industry and, and probably other industries, but certainly the financial industry have done for quite some time that may be more if then condition statements that are are a little bit more simple modeling versus a more complex artificial intelligence application or machine learning where instead of freezing the modeled reality, I think uh, some words that you've used in a prior publication, instead identify or, or learn various rules for itself, which can be very complex for traditional programming. So talk to us a bit about that, because we simply certainly don't want to look at every model as necessarily artificial intelligence, just because there's a human factor. Yeah, so maybe we just start with the question of what is really AI, uh, which is a really good question, because if you ask 10 people, you might get 12 opinions on that. Yeah, first of all, there's a traditional program and you have the if and then conditions. So uh, you do the recipe. So you have input data, you have some sort of output, and there is an engineer typing, dear computer, this is your language. I tell you how you take that input with the if then whatever program I write, and then you give me that output. This um, is how the world has been for ages. And now this has changed in the last uh, years. Now it's a bit more obvious that this change is one of the bigger changes, I think. Machine learning doesn't have these rules uh, you're typing in. So it learns, you get, give them the data, you give the machine learning model the data, and it learns the rules from the data itself. So it must not necessarily know the function. If, if we stay with, let's say, um, logistic regression, then you have the function. You have function f is said, something like that. And um, the function can be learned by the machine learning model. Don't need to give them a function to the machine learning model. And so I think this is the biggest difference. And I would like to speak of AI when the machine learns also the function and not only the parameters, but because you can't say, okay, I know the function of a logistic regression and I only learn the parameters. And this is also some sort of learning. I can do that from the data. But when it's something I would love to talk about AI from learning the function itself. And I know I, I jumped to actually referencing a publication that you put out earlier this year in, in February that was quite good, that really looked at various opportunities in AI and, and machine learning some about the AI Act in Europe and some other implications of, of the developments going on. So it, diving a little bit further in there, because it really was a, a great publication, there are a few quotes that I took out, including, by entering a symbiosis between human and machine for labeling tasks, feedback loops, and decision-making, the efficiency and effectiveness of a process can be increased while at the same time risks can be mitigated. I thought that was a, a great quote to think about because we're always talking about how do we mitigate risks in financial services. So where do you see the greatest application perhaps for that aspect? 
I think it's across all tasks in, in our bank that I think I strongly believe that humans can really add something also to, to automated decision making because not always is it the case that we have the form of true automation. It's uh, most often the case that we do have a process where an employee does a task X, Y, Z and then we do have a tool for him to improve his decision he's doing or improve the task he's going to do. So we love to talk about augmentation in this end. So you can have anything from human in the loop from crossing the human completely out or just giving him some sort of information so he has still the power of everything and has only some information gathered for him. So in the middle, it can be nearly anything. And of course, if you look into the, the, the fact that there are two things uh, from the European AI Act, it also states there um, needs to be human oversight possible for, for the high-risk cases because you need to, to look into it if something goes wrong, right? Plus, I would even extend that, that human oversight for our data scientists who also have some sort of responsibility. How do they do that? How do they do the modeling? Uh, what do they do during the life cycle, if they have a retraining, how do they set the trigger points when the model needs to be reviewed and these kind of things. This is, I think, an additional human oversight. And of course, if since we are in Germany, the uh, data protection regulation says that if you are subject to automated decision making, then you do have the right as a customer that human looks over there, just avoid that something went completely wrong. So you bring up the EU AI Act, as, as we mentioned, we dive into. So let's let's dive in there. So a little bit of background for those less familiar with the act itself. The EU AI Act, which may be finalized likely in late 2024, perhaps after the European Parliament approved a draft text just this June, classifies AI systems into four categories by use. And you mentioned risk level, Julia. So for those listeners, those four categories are minimal risk, limited risk, high risk, and unacceptable risk with associated transparency requirements and restrictions on various applications. The corresponding disclosure burden puts the onus on firms to demonstrate compliance. Similar concerns, however, with respect to high compliance burdens, but with varied industry application, perhaps, had already been raised in the EU regarding the EU's data protection and privacy standards at earlier points in time when those were being developed. So it's interesting that these same data laws have already been referenced as perhaps regulating key aspects of uh, artificial intelligence. So perhaps lowering some of the urgency of of the new laws, but setting up perhaps an overlap or two different approaches to data use in AI between industries, one on the hand of data policy uh, regulations and then on the new AI Act regulations. How are you thinking about those approaches and the challenges that might lie there? So yes, you're right. We do have already the laws touching upon data, in particular the data protection regulation. We also have MIFID in, in Germany where algorithmic trading would be regulated, which is also based on algorithms and uh, large sorts of data. And yeah, I really think there will be overlaps because uh, we need data to train our models 
And all, if you look into the transparency obligations in the data protection regulation or the right to an explanation for, for the customers, the basics are already in there. And I think on top, the AI Act uh, wants to look into where is AI applied and uh, how does it affect the fundamental rights of people and will it change the people's prospects of well-being if they are subject to some sort of automated decision-making because there are studies which clearly show if you automate automate decisions, you also automate bias. And actually, that's a great point. Questions about bias. Referencing back to the article that Commerce Bank published earlier in the year again, it points out that it's important to note that even when a potentially discriminating feature is not recorded or later deleted from a data set, it is still mathematically possible that the model result is dependent on this feature, which is a very important item to note. And then goes on to recognize that both AI and machine learning model creation is an iterative process. And of course, transparency and fairness should be a prerequisite, but nonetheless, lots of corresponding validation steps can only be completed during or after the modeling process. And then one sentence that I think is just so key here is to ask for final fairness validations from the start without blocking innovation from the beginning is thus neither feasible nor meaningful. I think that's such a strong statement. If you want to speak at all further to that. I'd love to because it's really an important thing to state. So if you if you look at, into what we're doing, so we, we might have an idea for a new product or a new process in Commerce Bank. We start trying out and doing some sort of benchmarks, for example, proving that the new process is better than the old one. This would be one option we could do. So, of course, we, we make a proof of concept. And we can demonstrate this the way forward or it might not just be. Maybe the idea was just good, but didn't work out in the end. So it's, of course, an ideation process we follow. And uh, so, yes, of course, you need some basic values at the start. But if you just don't know what your what the model will look like, or sort of the tests you cannot just do in the beginning. You can't do a final test that uh, fairness is there for, let's say, men and women at the beginning You can think about it. You need to think about it, that you don't want to discriminate men versus women, for example. Only There can be many other examples about discrimination. You need to think about it in the beginning and you need to keep it in mind. You cannot just say, okay, I thought about it at day one and now I forget about discrimination, never come back. Because discrimination can enter in all sorts of forms and at all stages of the process it can enter by the very question you ask it can enter by the data you bring for example if you just ask the people in the area i live for example who is going to be the next chancellor of germany it's only that one tiny area it might be just uh, white people working in the banking environment like me maybe it's not representative for germany and How did you gather the data? What did you do with the data? How did you clean it? There was also a hiring tool, which was in the media often, where they were from the tech industry and they, they trained their data on the best applicants of the last 10 years. But they happened to be working in IT. And in the last 10 years, most of the IT staff came in were men uh, from the same colleges. And all the good applicants were, in the end, men. And you, you couldn't get rid of that bias because it just had, had not much data uh, on women to To cover that out. 
It is really important to, to think about the data again that, that underlies any model and then any application to artificial intelligence, to machine learning. Data really enables artificial intelligence. And without large sets of data representing multitudes of customer activities, AI models have limited information to synthesize and could find their outputs constrained, potentially, you know, even of relevance only to a small group of consumers, depending on how constrained, or perhaps, as you point out, lacking the accuracy enabled by what would otherwise be a robust data set so, so that there's more information to make those judgments off of. It's so being able to then trust the results Results, right? Uh, a lot of people talk about, can you really know uh, what is the output of the artificial intelligence, particularly these days as people talk about chat GPT and, and other generative AI that the, the populace is you know very actively testing out and using right now. How often is there a, a result that actually makes sense versus something that's just a, a function of whatever data is it happens to be pulling on it at the time. And, and so being able to trust the results that are generated by AI models of all types is really essential for the broad deployment of AI. And that really requires, in, in many cases, larger data sets to improve accuracy, which I, I would imagine that some of the data localization policies of, of various jurisdictions or other barriers to the free flow of data could then impact the ability of some of, of these applications to be appropriately trained, uh, would you say? Yeah, that's definitely true. So um, if you in particular look into the fraud area or the fraud prevention areas, so we do have, let's say, many, many transactions per day where we can run the tests against anti-money laundering or fraud. But just imagine we had all the data or someone had all the data from all the banks, from all the transactions, let's say in Germany. Of course, finding patterns would be then even more interesting to find uh, find forces uh, which are sometimes quite bad, but sometimes they are really advanced and trying to circumvent anything the normal system has to offer. I'm glad that you bring up fraud in, in a particular use case because it actually makes me jump to something else that I had noted that I thought was just so on point about your your publication earlier this year. And that, that really speaks to you know the desire to look into a, any given model and say, how exactly do we explain it? Can you lay it out for everyone to understand it, know exactly how it works, know exactly how it came to a particular outcome if you can't explain it, then then maybe somebody doesn't believe it, right? But the flip side of that, which is, is a valid discussion, it looks something like noted here, valid concerns speak against disclosing detailed information on AI systems, especially in the context of fighting fraud, disclosing details about the tools used to find fraudulent activities might help circumventing them. So while we look for transparency in many aspects of uh, financial services, or most, most if not all aspects of financial services, there is you know, an, an another aspect to think about, particularly with, with such models. Should we feel compelled to share and be fully transparent about how something is arriving at a particular outcome if it will make it more difficult for us to do things like fight fraud? 
Yeah, I think the, the right answer to that lies somewhere in between two extremes. You can say, okay, I'm not saying anything. It's my intellectual property. I will not disclose anything. So then uh, you might just end up being not trusted by people. And maybe that that's a thing you, you just made on your own. And on the other hand side, you can say, okay, I publish anything. All code we have for all applications we do. But basically, what would it help? people to have all these source codes and these kind of things uh, because they are only really ever valid if you have data to train them on because we can never share the data obviously and um, who is going to read all that source code nobody's going to have time and imagine all the big techs from the Americas for example are going to do that and have fun uh, reading through that I won't have any time to do that or any interest and I think it's somewhere in between it just really depends on the situation uh, let's take for example uh, the transparency first I think it's really important to be clear honest and open about how data is used like a bit in it's already laid down in the GDPR but this is also something the AI acts as that you really need to be transparent what happens with the people and what is going to, to happen and especially in the generative AI space where you can have chatbots, talkbots or deepfakes even. They also add here that you need to be transparent that it's for example not me, it's my avatar talking to you and I would need to label that right on my head, right? And on an explainability side it's really dependent on whom you're talking to for the addressee can be so different one of the addresses can your cus be your customer it can be the regulator it can be another data scientist who's going to do the validation of your model and so it really depends on the context how to talk to someone and so the inner workings of the model might be less relevant as more as the process as a whole why did you take that data Uh, how did you train it? Did you pay attention to fairness and these kind of things? So I love that one example we have here in Germany. We do have a housing market with prepayment options. And you can have, let's say, a 10 years or 15 years loan uh, for for your mortgage loan. And each year you can buy um, back um, 5% of your mortgage. So it's basically a Bermudan swaption. And uh, the people from the banking industry, they know, Pricing Bermudan swaptions is not really easy. And if you're just a normal person, you might just not know how to price it because you need to, to have stochastic volatility and stochastic correlations and these kind of things. You need to do volatility surface and it's quite heavy mass for, for most of the people. And you might not have the data to really calculate whether it's three basis point or four basis point worth for you. But what is really important, I think, that you explain your customer in this this case, how can you use that option? Do you really need that? Do you want to pay extra? And how much is it worth to you? And when do you, can you use it? And how can you use it? And I think this needs to be explained to people. And I think we already do that here in Germany in that case. And well, I think hardly anyone who has a housing loan priced his own Bermudan swaption. It actually really drives me into then questions about ethics. AI ethics is a, is a phrase that we hear a lot about right now, and particularly thinking about how do institutions even go about thinking about the governance of ethics with respect to AI, and then how the data is protected and managed and governed in relation to how it then is employed in AI. So as you think about AI ethics, how are you thinking about that particular concept and considerations that may 
have further been brought up in the AI Act as it stands today. When thinking about the AI Act, I think it is in large part about AI ethics because its whole purpose is to be about the fundamental rights and protecting these fundamental rights of people. And these fundamental rights are the most basic rights we can talk of. And uh, so I think the AI Act really covers that already. So it also has this uh, class of prohibited AI, where they say, okay, this, these, these applications in these areas of lives, we don't want to have them. We don't want to see them here in, in uh, mainland Europe, because they're just in contrast to our uh, union values and our fundamental values. So it is in large part already there. And uh, if you talk about, I think, uh, the data ethics part in that I think a lot of this is already covered in the GDPR because there's also fundamental rights uh, assessment and it, it covers a lot of the questions what can be done with data and what cannot be done with data. So I think getting back to data and, and again the protection of, of individuals, there is one framework that has been laid out in thinking about international definitions that may have adequate protections in a destination country that they could follow those, perhaps laid out by the EU-US data privacy framework from this July. And the framework places no real restrictions on non-personal data and, and promotes pseudonymization, like replacing identifiers with artificial IDs and enabling the use of data by AI while also guaranteeing privacy. It also requires the deletion of data after its consented use is, is completed. So much like previous data, data policies that we've gotten familiar with stemming from Europe. Provided that this framework kind of gets through legal challenges, which are already underway, the UK, Switzerland, and Singapore have expressed some interest in adopting those standards in the framework, creating perhaps some, some digital bridges of, of sorts. You know, if you look at other jurisdictions outside of Europe and the impact of a lot of Europe's advanced or forefront movements, both in terms of data regulation and in terms of laying out this, uh, the AI Act and, and ethical standards around the use of AI. How are you seeing that impact or play into how other jurisdictions and, and the rest of the world may begin approaching this space? So I think in, in Europe, we do have a rights-driven approach. So there is a strong focus on the fundamental rights, protection, the democracy, and the values we believe in. But also, it's also the clear intention of the AI Act to be innovation-friendly. However, I think the rights-driven approach and the fundamental rights uh, are in the bigger spotlight. If you look into UK, for example, who is, uh, has obviously left the European Union, what I hear from, from the UK, at least, is they say, okay, we don't have a need to regulate all AI components horizontally we will only look into if there might be gaps in vertical regulation, which is completely different to what uh, European is do, uh, doing. We are, the EU AI Act is for all industries. Um, it will not only apply for banking, it will just apply for everyone. Then, of course, we, we can look into the US and um, 
you might have more insights on that. But what I perceive here in, in Germany from the US is that the US had, has a really deep faith in markets and economic prosperity and they, they love technology. And so the fears are not that big as I perceive them to be in, in Europe. But uh, we can also read um, from a couple of days and weeks ago that Biden and Harris have gathered the most important AI uh, leading companies to discuss a voluntary code of conduct to ensure safety in the development of AI. So I think there's already starting some sort of shift because fears are getting even stronger maybe in the US. And um, I think in in China, there's a whole different approach to that. They have really state-driven approach. And it's, it's also about protection of what they perceive to be the democratic values. And I think if you have these powerful generative AI tools, controlling them is really, really a challenge, maybe even for China. And I think the, the regulations they are currently issuing, they are going into that direction. And I do love uh, that one article from Anu Bradford a couple of uh, weeks ago. Um, she also has a book which uh, says uh, the Brussels effect and she says that the European Union is really good at being thoughtful about uh, regulation and um, in the end all these big tech companies they adjust even though they are not EU-based. They adjust their products and services to, to the Brussels effect, to the Brussels regulation and she perceives a shift so the Brussels effect is going to to impact all yes and, and the article that you're referencing for our listeners is from foreign affairs titled the race to regulate artificial intelligence subtitled why europe has an edge over america and china i will be curious to see how that plays out as you note ai policies certainly exist along a spectrum as of right now from being voluntary commitments of ethical use of AI tools to specific laws governing who can use what kinds of tools, and then certainly imp impacted by geopolitical considerations, the desire of any given jurisdiction to have more or less control over certain kinds of data and how it's used, just a, a breadth of different points of leverage and complexity that I think we'll see play out. But Anu Bradford is predicting that, that Europe has an edge. And I have a tendency to, to like that idea. You know, if, if it, Europe does, it's good to uh, be a financial institution in, in Europe. <laughs> uh, there, there was one other topic that I wanted to cover today before uh, we wrap up the session, and those are AI supply chain considerations. Really, since the rise of ChatGPT gaining, you know, more relevance, and the European Parliament reacting to this kind of positioning and, and how it may impact supply chain. So, why don't you give us just a a few thoughts about that, Julia. Yeah, maybe I just start with the term foundation models or general purpose AI, which is the terms uh, the AI Act uses. Uh, so they say there is AI which is which doesn't have a specific purpose. It can do many different tasks and for example these chatbots like uh, like you mentioned you type in something and you get out something it doesn't necessarily need to be about banking or the film industry or pharmaceuticals so the idea is that these products are not directly regulated in the first place 
they call themselves foundation models. So they are they're building a foundation where you as a provider or maybe as a bank can do something specific with it. And if you integrate it into something specific, which is going to be a high risk use case under the AI Act, then you will be the one that is regulated under the AI Act and you have to comply with all the high risks requirement in Article 16. Whereas the foundational model provider uh, where you buy that from, he or she has to give you uh, some information and some help to prove that you are co in compliance with the regulation, but uh, you are going to be the one regulated. However, these foundation models, uh, they need to register in a EU database. So there is some sort of transparency and included in the current version of the European Parliament. It's rather new, the Article 28B, is it, with the foundation models and the AI supply chains, because I think the rise of AI and the thinking about all the possibilities there might be has changed a bit the view on the parliamentarians on that space. Certainly something that we will be looking forward to and, and keeping a close eye on, on in the future, particularly given challenges with supply chains over the last couple of years. I can imagine that folks will be quite interested to see the potential impacts to AI. And I'm pretty sure it's a bit like uh, what we've done with the cloud and the cloud service providers in the, the last couple of years, because we can easily compare at least that supply chain thing, because if you have uh, one of the hyperscalers, and uh, you just have a contract with them and you don't put in data, you don't have any regulatory problems because you don't do nothing, right? And as long as you want to put in data there, you want to use something, something specific, then you need to look into all the outsourcing regulations. And yeah, here we are going to also look into the outsourcing regulations again, plus into the AI supply chains, because we need to learn more on how the model was trained, how did they test for fairness and these kind of things. And I guess this is going to be a learning curve on both sides, let's say in the, the companies or the banks in our case, and, and the general purpose AI model providers, because we as banks, we can never outsource responsibility. This will always stick with us. Perhaps we'll close with just a few final thoughts. I've summarized that AI models are only as good as the data they are trained on. As more industries embrace AI, the effectiveness and dependability of AI models is of increasing importance. The first step in establishing this trust and transparency is certainly to responsibly construct the data universe that AI models can access and really think about what that universe is and, and what should they be accessing. Data policies are increasingly industry specific in many cases and in many jurisdictions maintain detailed standards of what kind of firms are allowed to access various kinds of data and how that data can be shared. So as policymakers increasingly recognize the interactions between AI and data policies, there may be some risk that certain industries will see themselves held to separate standards based on their distinct data rules. But the financial services industry, I think, which is so important, has, has much to share about responsible collection, storage, and use of customer data. And the industry will need to consider both tracks of policy development and, and can make valuable points to regulators in their home jurisdictions about the intersection as these policies may not be taken up in a holistic fashion in every jurisdiction, even as much as we would like them, like them to be so. So with that, what next steps in AI regulation, standardization, things that we should be keeping an eye on, Julia? 
Yeah, so of course we need to uh, look into the uh, final answers uh, the trilogue might come up with the AI Act. But if that's done, it's not over. There are a lot of points about the how. How can you, for example, test for fairness? How can you um, make sure transparency is really in your tool? And how can you have explainability? Um, how can you prove it? All these kind of things are going to be in the new standards. So the European Commission has issued a crest to develop uh, the standards for Zen and Zenelec. And after they are reviewed by the Commission, they uh, will be harmonized standards. And these uh, will also make up the presumption of conformity. So if you want to be conform with the AI Act, you have no chance or you should better look into these standards. And uh, I think there's a lot more to come. Well, there you have it. Thank you very much, Julia, for being with us today and for sharing your views from your position, really stewarding business development for big data and advanced analytics at, at Commerce Bank. Thank you very much for tuning in to this episode of FRT. We look forward to having you join us again on upcoming episodes. You can always check them out on the IAF website as well at IAF.com.